0: to uh another rousing episode of baseball is dumb uh, I'm your host mr Ian Baker and with me as usual
1: I'm, it, hi I'm, hey, hi I'm Johnny
0: It's Johnny boy coming to record baseball is dumb you
1: just make that up on the spot I did yes wow I could tell
0: <laughs> um yeah I'm uh I'm actually a uh, you know trying to get my uh, soundcloud off uh, off the ground
1: yeah <laughs> Are you? Are you really?
0: <laughs> no, I should probably put this show on SoundCloud. That might help. Uh, Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> 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 All right. Um, welcome to the show. This is a show about the, the dumbest stories of America's pastime, and we're here to share them with you. Thank you for joining us. But first, uh, we have a little bit of sad baseball news. This will be old news by the time you're listening to this, but the day we're recording this baseball great legend of the game, one of the greatest to ever do it, Mr. Hank Aaron passed away the age of 86 well we talk for hours and hours and hours about him i'm going to uh i'm going to give you some of the rundown of his (laughs) monstrous stats and about why he's like one of the greatest to ever ever play the game hammer and hank hammer and hank he is a member of the 3000 hit club there are only 32 players in the history of baseball who have gotten in and yeah he has 3,771 hits, which is good for third all time. 3,700. 3,700 hits. Mental. He hit 755 home runs, which is second all time. He broke Babe Ruth's home run record, which was then later broken by Barry Bonds. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all know. We all know about that. Yes, we do. His career batting statistics: uh, batting average of three oh five, slugging percentage was .555. And an OPS of 9-8. to That's like, that's not just
1: one season.
0: That's overall. Yeah, all of his, I think he played like 26 seasons. Mm -hmm. He played 26 Mm -hmm. seasons. He was voted as an All-Star 25 times. (laughs) Uh, I think in his rookie season, he finished like fourth in Rookie of the Year voting. That's still
1: pretty nuts. That's great. That's great.
0: Um in 1957 he won both the World Series and the League MVP <laughs> with the Atlanta Braves. Crazy. And uh his career wins above replacement 143.1
1: so, which is 7th all time. That's so for you guys don't know who, who what wins above replacement is. Wins above replacement is basically how valuable a player is to a team based on like they take a lot of stuff into account, but it's how many wins uh, a team, or how many game, how many more games a team would win <laughs> with this player compared to just like an average Joe Schmo, yeah. you know. Like a AAA guy. Yeah, like a AAA standard player. So he won almost an entire season's worth of games <laughs> I was just about by to, himself. I was just about to make that point. It's like, if you put Hank Aaron on the diamond by himself, he would win an entire season. Yeah. Uh, I mean,
0: <laughs> That's crazy. That's nuts. Yeah, just absolute insanity. One of the greatest to ever do it. So Mr. Hank Aaron, rest in peace. Uh, we will miss you. And not only was he just a phenomenal player, just a great dude and did a lot to integrate the game of baseball because he came up in the you know mid-1950s.
1: Mm-hmm. So just, I mean, truly legendary dude. Yeah, like really, really showing that it doesn't matter like what race you are, mm-hmm. that you can be phenomenal at baseball. You can be the best baseball player, one mm-hmm. of the best baseball players of all time. Crazy.
0: I forget the full context of the clip, but there is a clip where he hits a home run. I, I forget if he like broke the record or set like a personal record, but he hits a home run, and as he's running around the bases, like fans are coming out of the stands just to come and congratulate him. And uh, the announcer... He's like, oh, this is such a beautiful moment, not only for baseball, but for America, because here in Atlanta, a bunch of white people are getting out of the crowd to congratulate a black man.
1: Yeah, that's that's crazy. Which
0: I I forget. I don't know what year this was, but obviously for the time that was pretty that was monumental. Yeah, basically
1: like 50s and 60s. That's, you know, <clears throat> that's the heart of it. Right. Yeah.
0: I mean, What a what a career. What a life. Yeah. Rest, um, in, rest in peace, Hank. Uh, rest in peace, Mr. Hank Aaron. Um, okay, but today's episode is, um, well, before before we get into today's episode, you might remember from our first episode, a quote from Mr. Freeze, where he said, um, in life, you can do a hundred good things and one bad thing, but you will only be remembered for the bad thing. <laughs> That's kind of the theme for today's episode. Oh, no,
1: okay. Um, yeah, it's, this is... <laughs> when you, when you bring up Mr. Freeze... I mean, this guy isn't at—he's
0: <laughs> not remembered for the poor reasons that Mister Freeze is maybe unfairly remembered for. But it is unfortunate, and it is unfair, and we are going to talk about it <laughs> today. We're talking about Carl Frederick Rudolph Merkel, aka Fred Merkel. Fred Merkel. Uh, he was a first baseman for New York, who had a nearly twenty-year career in the majors. Um, which which New York? Uh, the Giants. Okay, so this is yeah. this is some old time. He has old time stuff. Um, so this is Fred Merkel is not to be confused with Fred Merkel, three time AMA Superbike champion and back to back Superbike World Champion, who had eight wins and twenty four podiums in one hundred and seventeen starts, along with seven fastest lap awards. I none of those yeah. words like made sense to me. We all know who this guy is. He's in the AMA Motorcycle Hall of Fame and the Motorsports Hall of Fame of America. But this not, it's it's not that Fred Merkel. Okay, or this is baseball Fred Merkel. Okay, it's not that guy. It, no, it definitely know who that
1: guy uh-huh. is. Uh huh. Yeah,
0: that's on motor
1: motorsports are dumb. That's our, our sister <laughs> podcast. Stay tuned for motorsports are <laughs> dumb, where um, we talk about motorsports, even though we have no idea what they are. Yeah. I also wrote
0: down that uh, motorsports Fred Merkel had four starts in the pole position. I looked that up and I. Don't remember what it means. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe someone out there does and can tell us. Um, Okay, but back to baseball, Fred. Uh, Fred was born on December 20th, 1888, in Waterford, Wisconsin. Because, like, he's German. Of course he was born in Wisconsin. He's from Wisconsin. But he actually grew up in Toledo, Ohio. Uh, In Toledo, he was a star pitcher on his high school baseball team, as well as a star halfback on the football team. As a 17-year-old, Fred pitched for a lot of semi-pro teams around Toledo and tried out for a minor league team in the Ohio-Pennsylvania League. Uh, In 1906, Fred signed with Tecumseh in the Southwestern Michigan League, where he was shifted to first base. During the 1907 season with Tecumseh, Fred held a .271 batting average and led the league in home runs. Can you guess how many he hit? Led the league in home runs. Led the league in home runs. Mm. Mind you, this is dead ball era. Fifteen. Six. Six. <laughs> six. <laughs> yeah. Clobbering the ball out Man, here. He
1: smashed that thing um, <laughs> six times. So
0: his performance caught the attention of the New York Giants, who are now the San Francisco Giants. Right. Uh, and they purchased his contract for twenty five hundred dollars, which is about sixty nine thousand today. Nice. Nice. <laughs> um, it was a really great time to join the Giants. The Giants were a really great team, uh, early nineteen hundreds. <laughs> mostly because they were managed by a man by the name of John McGraw, who I think we mentioned a little bit last episode. I think I remember. John McGraw was a player turned manager for the Giants. He is considered to be the best player to become a great manager. As a player, he held a career batting average of three thirty-four, a wins-above replacement of 45.7, and over 1,000 runs scored. As a manager... He led his team to 2,784 wins, which still stands, still stands as second all-time managerial
1: wins. I, for some reason, I like had a like. Brain fart, and I thought you were gonna say he led them to two thousand World Series <laughs> victories. It's like, man, baseball's older than I thought it yeah. was.
0: <laughs> They've won more more World Series than baseball's even had. <laughs> <laughs> That's how great of a manager he is. Uh, yeah, so he was tremendous. He led the Giants to ten National League pennants and three World Series titles across his twenty nine seasons with the Giants. They finished in first or second place 21 times. Oh my god, that's crazy. So McGraw made several innovations to the game that are still used today. McGraw is kind of considered the dead ball era manager. Mm -hmm. And we keep talking about dead ball, live ball uh, on the show. We haven't really gotten into it, so I'm going to dissect that a little bit now. So the dead ball era was between 1900 and 1920. It was called the dead ball era because they used the same ball for the entire game, which we've talked about. But the game was played a lot differently than it is now. Power hitting really wasn't in vogue, mostly because they used use the same ball the whole game. Hitters just couldn't see the ball mm-hmm. as well. And so it was a very low scoring time for the sport. It was a lot of like, you know, one to two score lines, maybe two to three. It right. was a tactical game? It was a lot about, you know, getting a base hit or, and like getting a sack butt, stealing a base. Mm-hmm. And John McGraw had a really great mind for this kind of thing. He was one of the first pitchers to uh, use pinch hitters and pinch runners. Okay. Um, he was also one of the first managers to use a relief pitcher to come in and save a game Okay. at
1: the end. Yeah, that's like pretty big, pretty big thing.
0: <clears throat> yeah, so he had a really great mind for the tactics of the game, and you know, we still use these things today, and he, was, he kind of pioneered the use of all that. Um, pinch hitters and pinch runners just means you're taking the player you put in the game initially and replacing them with somebody else, so... Like, to put it in, in like today's context, say, you know, Albert Pujols gets a single. Now he's on first base, and he's, like, the winning run or whatever. Mm-hmm. You're probably going to pull him out of the game and put somebody faster than Albert Pujols
1: on first. Like, literally anyone else? Yeah, I brought up Albert because that's just the extreme example.
0: <laughs> yeah, because he,
1: Albert Pujols is the slowest person in baseball. Yeah,
0: he runs so slow now. So that's, that's what you would use a pinch runner for. A pinch hitter, you know, you send a guy up to hit instead of who would normally come up in the order. that's what john mcgraw did and he was infamous for his fiery irish temper mcgraw frequently got into fights with umpires earning himself 121 ejections throughout his career (laughs) he once got ejected from a game but kept screaming at the umpire and arguing for so long that the umpire just said fuck this ended the game and made the giants forfeit (laughs) holy shit That's next level. I couldn't find what he was so angry about, but I kind of don't care. That's just a great story. That's, that's a really good
1: story. I like. I want to know what he was arguing about now.
0: So he actually held the record for most managerial ejections until 2007, when it was broken by Atlanta's Bobby Cox. That that figures.
1: It would be him.
0: Um, he was equally as vicious with his own players. John would issue fines for things as simple as being friendly to an opposing player, and did not allow smiling in the dugout. Oh <laughs> my! Uh, his dictatorial oh, managing God. style and his height of five foot seven earned him the nickname
1: "Little Napoleon." <laughs> uh, Imagine being called Little Napoleon <laughs> in like the early nineteen hundreds. <laughs>
0: uh especially like wasn't napoleon like actually really not that short i think like, he was
1: like like probably like five yeah wasn't he like average height for his day <laughs> yeah whatever i don't think he's as short as like people would make him. yeah out it's to kind of me. been over exaggerated but yeah it's been characterized um,
0: so the giants had a bench coach uh his name was arlie latham we mentioned him very briefly in our gladiator episode if you remember the story of when that hour-long fight broke out between uh, yeah. with the Cleveland Spiders, Arlie Latham was the guy who got into the fight <laughs> initially. He did it, he and then the Cleveland it. Spiders chased him around the outfield with bats. <laughs> <laughs> so he's he's with the Giants now as a coach, and he once said of McGraw quote McGraw eats gunpowder every morning for breakfast and watches it down with warm blood.
1: <laughs> wow. <laughs> so Wait, the... hold on, <laughs> hold on. You gotta like you gotta you gotta say that again. Okay. So John McCraw eats
0: gunpowder every morning for breakfast. For breakfast. And washes it down with warm blood. Not just blood, warm, warm blood. Warm blood. Not room temperature, not chilled, warm. Which means it's probably fresh. Yep Fre- yeah. That's what I was thinking <laughs> <From> too. <laughs> whatever he just killed. With his gunpowder. With his gunpowder mouth. What if he puts gunpowder in his mouth, grabs like, you know, the animal, like a chicken that he wants to eat that morning, and just chomps on it? And the gunpowder
1: explodes. (laughs) And then he can just consume the whole animal. He's made of iron. He's made of iron. Gunpowder does nothing to him, but it does to everybody else. Yeah.
0: So the all-time leader for managerial wins is Connie Mack with over Mm 3,700. But he once said, quote, there has only been one manager and his name is John McGraw. (laughs) (laughs) he's just like nobody else matters it's me mind you connie has about over a thousand wins a thousand more wins than john does but he's still like no john's the greatest is
1: like doesn't matter
0: so uh this is who fred merkel plays for now okay let's Um, go fred made his major league debut on september 21st 1907 at the age of 18 he was the youngest player in the national league Fred played in 15 games for the Giants, usually as a pinch hitter, and he batted 255. Yeah, which is, I know small sample size, but that's solid. I mean, yeah. once every four at-bats, perfect. You're doing your job. Yeah. Um the Giants yeah. finished 4th in the pennant race that year. Uh the Chicago Cubs won the pennant with a record of 107 to 45 for a win for a win percentage of 690, which was also the best record in baseball. They were 17 games ahead of the Pirates who were in second place. You're
1: yeah. You're blowing everyone out of the water. Yeah. Uh,
0: the Cubs would win the World Series that year against the Detroit Tigers, sweeping them in four games. Uh, but before we get into the 1900 season, we got to talk about some 1900s context. Okay. <laughs> uh, so the National League pennant race was really brutal during this time. Uh, the Cubs, Giants, and Pirates were constantly battling each other for it. The top three spots in the NL were usually held by one of those teams. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a rundown of how where the pennant went. So the Pirates won the pennant in 1901, 02 and 03. Giants won 04 and 05. Cubs won 06, 07, 08. Pirates came back to win 09, Cubs won 1910 and then the Giants won 1911, 12 and 13.
1: Man, so that's like 13 <laughs> years where it's just those it, It's
0: just three teams and they were it, it was always just the three of them battling for the top 3 spots and they were usually pretty close to each other. Yeah. And so the 1908 season was the most competitive of this time frame. Throughout the course of the entire season, the three teams were almost always within five games of each other. And the league leader changed almost weekly. So Fred only played in 38 games during the 1908 season. He was still used pretty much almost exclusively as a pinch hitter. And occasionally he would substitute for their regular first baseman, Fred Tenney. And he was an excellent player. He was a career 294 hitter, and he had over 2,000 hits.
1: Great. Great, um, great guy. Great player.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, Merkel got a blood infection and almost almost had to have his foot amputated. He had two surgeries on his foot and missed most of July and August, but he was able to return to play in September. good. Now, I'm going to take a quick break from Fred to talk about another player by the name of Johnny Evers. So, Evers uh, was a Hall of Fame second baseman who spent the majority of his career with the Chicago Cubs. He was known to study the rulebook carefully and had every single rule, no matter how obscure, memorized. His insistence on the rules being enforced correctly, paired with his fiery temper, often led to him getting into heated fights with
1: umpires also. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, when you know the rulebook better than the umpires, then it's, like, that's an issue. I
0: couldn't find the amount of times he was ejected as a player, but it was a lot. (laughs) It's it's brought up quite frequently. Um, As a manager, he was only ejected 13 times, but he was constantly getting in fights with umpires. Sure. Um, On September 4th of that season of 1908, the Cubs and the Pirates were facing each other. With runners on the corners and two outs in the bottom of the ninth inning, the Pirates hit a single which scored the winning run. However, Pirates player Warren Gill did not touch second base. According to rule 4.09... A run shall not count if the runner advances to home when the third out is made by a force play. So basically means it doesn't matter if it's a winning run. If you have to touch a base, like you have to touch a base if a runner is behind you. Mm-hmm. So if you're on first, you have to touch second. If you're on second and there's already a runner on first, then you have to touch third. So Evers noticed Gill's mistake. He got the ball and he touched second to get the force out. Evers went and told home plate umpire Hank O'Day what happened, but O'Day said he didn't see it. Uh, hank was the only was the only umpire that day during this time you know you didn't have umpires at every base like we do today Mm -hmm. usually what you would have is like a home plate umpire maybe another umpire in the field to you know see other plays that are happening Mm -hmm. but today he was the only one and since he didn't see it the run scored and the pirates win the cubs protested the game but national league president harry pulliam upheld the call so that's johnny evers (laughs) real stickler for this kind of thing Fast forward a few weeks later to September 23rd, the Giants are hosting the Cubs for Game 3 of a four-game series at
1: the Polo Grounds, which is the worst stadium ever built. Yeah. Oh, my God. So, people, um, if you don't know what the Polo Grounds is, it's exactly what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was an old, like, polo field, like horse polo, that they made into a baseball field. Yeah, it was, like, one of the first
0: stadiums they tried to make, like, multi-purpose Like, they would play some soccer matches on it. I think a little bit of football, too. Mm -hmm. But it was built for polo, so the dimensions are insanely stupid (laughs) for baseball games anyway. Yeah. Like, the distance from home plate to deep center field was, like, almost 500 feet. Yeah, I
1: know. It's crazy.
0: But to right or left field, it was, like, (laughs) 300-something. Yeah. It It was a really bad stadium.
1: But, I think it was like wasn't it like less than 200 feet from home plate down the foul line? I think so. That's, that's it's, it's yeah, so stupid because the dimensions were so bonkers. It's like a rectangle. Yeah. Um
0: <laughs> I think it was often called the bathtub too just from, yeah. from how it just from how it looked. It's a terrible stadium. But this is where the Giants play, It's their home field. So the Cubs and the Giants had played a doubleheader the previous day with the Cubs winning both games and they're still in a dead heat for the NL pennant. Like it could it could be any of the three teams. Um, the Giants and the Cubs came into this game tied for first place in the national league and the Pirates were only one game back. Oh man. So this is this is a really a high stakes series. Very high stakes game too. And my dude, there's no like postseason during this time. So like if you don't win the pennant, you don't move on.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The World Series was the entire postseason. So you had to win the pennant if you wanted to
1: play in the postseason. Right. There's no divisions. It's yeah. just here's the leagues. Yeah,
0: go nuts. Yeah, here's the two best teams. So that morning, Fred Tenney woke up uh, with some really bad back pain. So McGraw let him rest, and he gave Fred Merkel the start. At just 19 years old and still the youngest player in the league, Fred got his first major league start in this game.
1: <laughs> Jeez!
0: There was a ton of hype for this game in the newspapers. The crowd that day was estimated at around 20,000 people, which for the day was a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a ton of people. So, the Cubs' starting pitcher that day was Jack Feister, uh, who had 12 wins and a 2.0 ERA that season. The Giants sent Hall of Famer Christy Mathewson to the mound, who would finish the season with 37 wins, and he had an ERA of 1.43. 37? 37 wins. This dude was, like, the star pitcher of his day. He's a monster. We're going to talk more about him
1: (laughs) as the episode goes
0: on. But, yeah, keep Christy Mathewson in the back of your mind. So as you can imagine, this game was a pitcher's duel even for the dead ball era. Mm-hmm. Matthewson surrendered just a solo home run to Joe Tinker in the top of the fourth, but the Giants responded with an RBI single from Mike Donlin that scored Buck Herzog in the bottom of the fifth. These are all like great baseball names, yeah, things, by the way. <laughs> especially you know early 20th century yeah, dude like names. Old
1: baseball names. We're gonna get
0: some more here in a second. <laughs> so a one-to-one tie held into the bottom of the ninth inning. Cy Seymour led off the inning with the ground (laughs) out. Great name. Great name. Art Devlin followed up with a single. With one on and one out, get ready for this name... Moose McCormick stepped up to the plate. <laughs>
1: Moose McCormick. These sound
0: like <laughs> these
1: sound like fake names. These aren't real
0: names. Oh, for for one episode, I should just take out all the names and replace them with fake names. I, just see like, I really... will honestly not know. Yeah, you know that
1: picture that I sent you of all of the like. There was, oh, the
0: Japanese. Yeah, uh, there, uh, there or... was a baseball game in the nineties
1: where where like. Uh, a Japanese game developer, I don't remember who it was, they had to make up like fake American names to put in their baseball game. And that's what these remind me of. <laughs> like, there's a guy named Mike Truck Mike that Truck, they made up. And Sleeve McDykel. Sleeve McDichell, <laughs> Bobson Dugnut. Like, if you told me these guys were played in like 1910, I would believe like, you. Yeah, sure. So,
0: fun fact about Moose McCormick, he was one of the first players to be used as a finch hitter. <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna do that again <laughs> sorry finch hitter what the fuck is wrong with me
1: dude he hates that bird so much. <laughs> yeah so we're gonna have this bad attacking trees <laughs> ah, fuck you uh, okay
0: uh no i'm not gonna edit that out i'm leaving that in <laughs> finch hitter. yeah finch hitter see see uh, kids even me i mess up too <laughs> Oh, God. So right. Moose, Moose McCormick was one of the first players to be used as a pinch hitter and is considered to have been one of the best pinch hitters ever. Great. Very reliable in the clutch. So Moose hits a ground ball to second base, which should have been a double play to end the inning. But Devlin slid into second hard and prevented a throw from being made, allowing Moose to reach first, first base safely. So with two outs and a runner on first, Fred Merkel comes up to bat.
1: Go for it. He
0: had only 41 at-bats all season, and in his previous at-bats in this game, he was 0-2 for 2 with a walk. After just two pitches, he found himself down in the count. No balls and two strikes. So one more strike, and we go to extra innings. The third pitch is delivered, and Fred hits a single down the first baseline. Moose ran all the way from first to third, but he wasn't able to score. Mm-hmm. So this brings up shortstop Al Birdwell. So with runners on the corners, two outs. The winning run is just 90 feet away. And Al hits a line drive single right up the middle. Moose runs home and scores the winning run. The crowd went wild and started storming the field to celebrate. Oh, so, I think I know where this is going. So Fred sees the fans coming onto the field and decides he doesn't want to get caught up in the crowd. So he turns and he heads for the clubhouse and center field. But... He didn't touch second face. Can you guess who noticed this? (laughs) Johnny Ever. (laughs) Uh... So what I'm about to say to you next, there are multiple accounts of what happened and they all kind of conflict with each other. Mm -hmm. So nobody really knows for sure what happened. I picked the one that I think makes the best story. So take this next paragraph with a, a grain of salt, I guess. So, Evers, he starts shouting to the Chicago center fielder, Sully Hoffman, to throw him the ball so he can touch second. Mm -hmm. Hoffman throws the ball, but it gets intercepted by Giants pitcher Joe Ironman
1: McGinnity. Wait, that's a fake name. (laughs) That that is real. Joe (laughs) Ironman McGinnity. McGinnity. (laughs) Um, so he's a pitcher But he
0: was uh, It was his off day So he was the third base coach That day uh-huh. uh, McGinnity So he takes the ball And then he just kind of Throws it into the crowd Because game's over Right um, <laughs> One source Said a Cubs player Quote Retrieve the ball Possibly by decking a fan In a boulder hat <laughs> which it's I had, mine give yeah, it back dude the balls on that guy to just run up and punch a new yorker in the face <laughs> on know. the baseball field in 1908 <laughs> Like That's crazy how he didn't get shot <laughs> i don't know probably yeah i don't know <laughs> so like i said no one knows for sure if the cubs retrieved that ball or grabbed another one from the dugout mm-hmm. but point is evers got a ball and he touched second base He then pled his case to the field umpire, Bob Emsley. But Owl's line drive came directly toward Bob, who dived to the ground to avoid being hit. He didn't see the play at second, and thus couldn't call it. The decision now rested in the hands of home plate umpire, Hank O'Day.
1: It's all, like, coming together. Uh
0: So, Evers told Hank what happened, and remembering just a few weeks earlier, Hank called Fred out on a forced play at second, nullifying Moose's winning run. The game should have gone to extra innings, but the field was covered with now very pissed-off Giants fans who were told that their team did not, in fact, win. According to the New York Times, fans became so hostile that the police had to perform a protective perimeter around Hank. Oh, my God. So, uh, O'Day calls the game on account of darkness, and it ended in a a one-to-one tie. So... (laughs) It was common for games to be called on, on, on account of darkness at this time because there wasn't really stadium lighting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. However, I don't know if I really buy that this time. <laughs> I think it was just, I don't there's a ton it. of pissed off people on the field and no one's going to be safe. So they just, they called the game. Yeah. <laughs> so um. the game ends in a tie. Naturally, the Giants protested t- this decision. But once again, O'Day's call is upheld by Harry Pulliam. The ruling is, game's a tie. And if the teams end up tied at the end of the season, they would play a tiebreaker game. Right. That was the final decision. Future Hall of Fame umpire. Did you know there was a Hall of Fame for umpires? I didn't know that. I didn't either. Now, now I do. Until I researched this story. So the, this umpire's name, his name is Bill Clem. He called this quote. <laughs> You're going to call him Bill Clinton. <laughs> no, Bill Clinton. He's, yeah. he's an umpire. He's, he's like K-L-E-M. Clem. Clem. yeah Clem. Bill Clinton. Um, he called this ruling "quote the rottenest decision in the history of baseball." <laughs> rottenest. <laughs> I, I love the ni- early 1900s. Me too. Like all oh, the rottenest decision ever. <laughs> Most people say like, "Oh, that's bullshit." Yeah, it's like, "Oh, that's bullshit." <laughs> like, "Oh, that you know that fucking
1: sucked." But now it's like, "Er, that was rotten, you <laughs> scoundrel."
0: So. <laughs> The following day, the New York Times wrote about the game, blaming the outcome on, quote, the censorable stupidity on the part of player Merkel. Fred was given the nickname Bonehead, and the incident was dubbed Merkel's Boner. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no. Um, yep, it's
0: called Merkel's Boner. No,
1: you can't do that.
0: They, they did. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, Fred just becomes a scapegoat, which is super unfair because. Even though this is his second season, he's still basically a rookie.
1: He hasn't even played 100 games yet. Yeah. I I more blame Johnny. <clears throat> basically. <laughs>
0: this was a very highly divisive, really controversial call mm-hmm. in the day. But John McGraw and all the Giants players stepped up and defended Merkel. Um, the Giants even defeated Chicago the next day, giving themselves a one-game lead over the Cubs. Now, especially in this time, like just kind of jogging off the field when the game was over— like, that was just kind of commonplace, and a ton of players would jog off without, without touching second or whichever base they were supposed to touch. Sure. So, like, this is just a technicality. Yeah. And a lot of people were pissed off for basically the same reason people get pissed off today about it's not necessarily the rule, but the inconsistency of it being enforced. Yeah, really. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, because of some wonky scheduling and some rainouts during the season, the teams had different schedules for the remaining two weeks. New York had 16 games left to play, while Chicago only had 10. The Giants won 11 of their last 16 to finish with a record of 98-55. and Chicago won 8 of their last 10. Their 8th win came on the last game of the season, and who was it against? The Pittsburgh Pirates, who themselves were still in the playoff hunt. The Cubs beat the Pirates 5-2, to leaving Pittsburgh with a record of 98-56, and so they were half a game back and they were then eliminated from the pennant race. Oh. But this left Chicago with a record of 98-55. and 55. <laughs> The tiebreaker game was set for October 8th. Oh. So like I said, there weren't playoffs in these days. <laughs> so course. basically, they just have to play a one-game playoff, and whoever wins this game is going to go to the World Series, and they're going to be facing the Tigers.
1: You may not know this answer. What if three teams tie? Like, can that happen? I know it didn't happen. Like, are you saying like if the Cubs, Giants, and, and Pirates Pirate tied. all tied? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't know if you did, but I figured I'd ask.
0: Yeah, I don't know what happens if all three of them would tie. Just merge all three of them together into the, a super team. The, the,
1: the giant, the giant <laughs> Brits. The giant, G- the giant Cub Pirates. The giant. <laughs> that's good. I like that. <laughs> yeah. So
0: this game. Huge rematch. Rematch for the ages, basically. The Chicago Tribune wrote a preview of the game saying, quote, If the Cubs don't win the pennant, tragedy, despair, insanity, suicide, coroners in and a new chapter in baseball history. Oh <laughs> basically, just like, everybody's going to kill themselves. Yeah, were going to be so sad. <laughs> what the? Well, with the amount of gambling going on with baseball now, like, I'm sure a few bookies... Maybe busted a few kneecaps over this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'd probably kill myself too. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, this game takes place in New York, and an estimated 40,000 people showed up to the Polo Grounds to watch oh, the game, cow. which was a record at the time.
1: Yeah. I can uh, imagine.
0: Both teams sent out the same starting pitchers as, <laughs> as Mergle's boner. <laughs> Jack Feister didn't make it very far into the game, though. In the bottom of the first inning, Feister hit the leadoff hitter Fred Tenney. He then walked Buck Herzog, but managed to pick him off at first shortly thereafter. Roger Bresnahan made the second out. Then Mike Donlin came up and hit a two-out RBI double scoring Tenney. Feister then walked the following batter, Cy Seymour, and was lifted from the game. He was replaced by Mordecai Three Finger Brown. (laughs) So, uh, this nickname is uh, pretty straightforward.
1: (laughs) He had three fingers.
0: Yes. Yeah. So his nickname, Three Finger, came from a uh, farm machinery accident that severed um, his index finger on his right hand and badly damaged his middle finger. Okay. And he was a right-handed pitcher. So, but, so he's got, like,
1: half a middle finger yeah. and, like, his ring and pinky and end. Yeah, and so. then the thumb.
0: Uh, there are pictures of this on the internet. It's gnarly <laughs> sounds if you want to see it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he has this horrible injury on his right hand, and he's a right-handed pitcher. But his injury allowed him to grip the ball in a really unique way.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, he had a nasty curveball and a highly deceptive fastball changeup combo. So he he was really hard to hit because his pitches were so tricky. And right. like he's in the Hall of Fame. Like he's one of the one of the best pitchers, and uh, all because the farm equipment chopped off part of his hand. Hey, that's crazy. <laughs> that's
1: like um, that's actually that's actually pretty cool. Yeah. Is just like it's like hey, your hand is messed up, but. You can still pitch. Yeah. But he figured it out to make it like yeah. it's like, hey, now I'm like one of the best pitchers. Yeah, because
0: he had such a literally only he could throw the way he could yeah, throw. Yeah, right. So he comes into the game. In the third inning, the top of the third, the Cubs hit a triple, a single, and two doubles to score four runs. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Doozy. Um the Giants tried to rally in the seventh but could only score once before the third out was made. The 4-2 scoreline held until the end of the game. The Cubs took their third straight pennant for their third straight World Series appearance in a rematch with the Tigers. The Tigers did better in the 1908 series. They weren't swept. Um, This time they only lost in five games. Instead of four, great. Uh, But little did the Cubs know, they would not win another World Series for 108 years.
1: (laughs) That was the last World Uh Series they won?
0: Before 2016, that was the last time they won.
1: What wow. All because Fred didn't touch second. Whoa. <laughs> and Johnny noticed it. You, you, like, every episode, you always come up with these, like, punchlines. Mm-hmm. The, it's that's... just,
0: there's so much shit that's connected. And imagine if, if Cleveland had won in 2016, uh-huh. the Cubs would still be in this drought.
1: Yeah, because the Cubs haven't made it to a World Series since 2016. Yeah, that was their last one.
0: Yeah, it was a 108 years. Between the 2016 and then this World Series win. Man. Right? Thanks, Fred. (laughs) So following the loss, of course, Merkel became a scapegoat. And once again, McGraw stepped up to defend his player, saying that there are several other games the team could have won that year, which would have put them ahead. His efforts would prove futile, though, as this game and the nickname Bonehead would haunt Merkel for basically the rest of his career. That stinks. One bad thing. One bad thing. (laughs) Uh, So, Fred's 1909 season was a really tough one for him. Many Giants fans still hated him, and to make matters worse, he was only batting 191 on the season, and he didn't hit a single home run all year. During one game in New York, at home in New York, Fred was getting booed by the crowd. There's a story that says Fred went up to McGraw and said, quote, listen to them hoot. You're making a mistake to keep me here. They don't want me. And McGraw replied, saying, I wish I had more players like you. Don't pay attention to those weathercocks, which at the time meant you were a fickle person. They're referring to, like, you know, the weather gauges oh, on yeah, top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it was a chicken, it's a, a male, yeah, a, it's cock a cock. As a weathercock. You're saying you change with current opinion. <laughs> huh.
1: We should use that. That's good. I yeah. That.
0: I like to imagine he had, like, a, a lot of tobacco in his mouth and he was like, don't
1: mind those weathercocks. <laughs> it's, it's nice that even though McGraw was, like, an asshole and, like, kind of insane. Yeah. He's, like, standing up for his team. Yeah.
0: He was, uh, maybe tough but fair isn't the most accurate thing. I don't know but... <laughs> if say fair.
1: He was tough, but... <laughs> but he was honest. <laughs> it, I just it, say I tough, know. but... Yeah. <laughs> and that's it. And just kind of leave it there. So
0: the Giants would finish this season with a record of 92-61, and 61, which is phenomenal.
1: Yeah. But remember right.
0: how tight this pennant race is, so they finished in third. Oh, my. Uh the Pirates. And, yeah, and they were in third. Uh, the Pirates represented the National League in the World Series that year against what I guess? The Tigers. <laughs> and the Tigers did even better this year. This time they only lost in seven games. <laughs> They're making it. They're getting there. Poor Tigers. <laughs> Losing the World Series three years in a row. And this is when they had like Ty Cobb, <laughs> yeah. like some really good players. Um so in 1910. Uh, Fred Merkel replaces Fred Tenney as the starting first baseman, and he had an excellent season. He set a new career-high batting average at .292 with four home runs, 14 triples, and 35 doubles. Once again, the Giants had a great season, finishing with a 91-63 record, but finished in second for the pennant. Uh, the Cubs returned to the World Series to face the Philadelphia Athletics, who are now the Oakland Athletics. Mm-hmm. But as I've already stated, the Cubs lost. Yeah. <laughs> they lost in five <laughs> games. Oh, and uh, the Philadelphia A's—they were managed by Connie Mack at okay. this time. So. All right. that figures. Yeah. So 1911. Is that all I all I know is John McGraw. That's the like Connie Mack—he's—he's Mack, he's the most winning manager. And no, he's, yeah,
1: yeah, but the only—the only manager. Oh,
0: right. I missed the joke. I'm a f- listeners. I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> that was very funny, Johnny. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad. <laughs> No, well, you know, as long as I make myself laugh, then that's all that matters. Honestly, that's all you can ask for. So, uh, the 1911 season saw more success for Merkel, who hit 283 and set career highs in home runs with 12, RBIs at 84, and stolen bases at 49. The Giants did have some misfortune, though. During the early morning hours of April 14th, a fire broke out at the polo grounds, destroying most of the stadium. Oh, I know, what
1: right? <laughs> grounds.
0: So the fire ate through like basically all the wooden bleachers because that's just how they were. And really all that was left with like steel support beams. That was just kind of it. There's some pictures of it of the players just like standing there looking at looking at the beams and just ashes everywhere. And it's in black and white too, because of the time, but it's like haunting.
1: <laughs> it sounds <laughs> kinda scary. It's really scary it's like a to look at movie.
0: So, for the next three months, the Giants played all their home games at Hilltop Park, which was a home field for the New York Highlanders. Um, If you haven't heard of the Highlanders, they were New York's American League team, and they had just moved up from Baltimore about eight years prior. They weren't very good, managing only a couple second-place finishes during their New York tenure, usually finishing in the bottom half of the AL standings. But like all evil empires, they start out small, because today you know the Highlanders as the New York Yankees. Ugh, those bastards. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, the Giants did have their stadium rebuilt, naming it Brush Stadium after the team's owner. I think it was also called like Polo Grounds 4 or something. I forget mm-hmm. which one it was called, but they just rebuilt the monster. <laughs> yeah. They would finish the season with a 99-54 and record, Winning them the pennant and earned their first trip to the World Series since 19- 1905. They faced off against the A's for a rematch of their 1905 series, in which the Giants won. So, the A's beat the Cubs the previous year, and they're you know, they're looking to defend their title. Mm-hmm. This is a big one. Big series. So, pitching was to be the name of the game for the series. For Game 1, the Giants set out their ace, Christy Mathewson. Who pitched three shutout games in the in this World Series, and he had 26 wins on the season. Pretty good. Oh, sorry, not he pitched three shutout games in the 1905 series. No, oh. not this one. Okay. My bad. Right. I had that written down. I still said it wrong. <laughs> the A's countered with a uh, Chief Bender. Chief
1: Bender. <laughs> Chief Bender. That's who, no. That's where I draw the line. <laughs> There's no one named Chief there Bender. There is no one on the planet <laughs> named Chief Bender. <laughs>
0: um, so he's on the mound, and he carried a two one six ERA. The two put up a pitching duel to a crowd of over thirty eight thousand at the New Polo Grounds. The game ended with a score of two to one in favor of the Giants. Game two was another duel between New York's Rube Marquard, who had two twenty four wins and two hundred and thirty seven strikeouts on the season but Philadelphia sent up Eddie Plank. He had 23 wins with a 2.1 ERA. A 1-1 score held into the sixth inning until Philly's Frank Baker hit a solo home run to right. The A's took Game 2 3-1. to Game 3 was, what else? A pitching duel. And remember, this is a dead ball era, so there's not a whole lot of like pitching staff, so Christy yeah. Mathewson is back on the mound for Game 3. And he carried a shutout performance into the ninth inning. The nice. Giants led 1 to nothing when Frank Baker came to the plate and he hit a game-tying solo home run. <laughs> to Matthewson's credit, he stayed in the game as it went to extra innings, but the A's won 3 to
1: 2 in the 11th. Hold on. Yeah, I this is kind of a tangent. I'm so surprised baseball stuck around after like during the dead ball era because imagine paying I, probably like a couple bucks for a ticket back then it but was like,
0: about like 10 cents i want to say
1: yeah like imagine paying to go see a baseball game sitting in the stands for like three hours it's tied zero zero in the ninth, and this yeah. happens a lot
0: well i guess because it was much slower in those times too like that was probably really exciting to watch and because baseball wanted to be like the gentleman's game, you know. Yeah. It was true. A,
1: it was supposed to be like a very cerebral, very tactical like, like oh, like what are they going to do? Yeah. Where are they going to move these guys? Like what are they going to try and do? Yeah, them it out? was like half athletic ability, half like mind games basically. Okay. Could, that's kind of how it was. I'm I'm a brainlet. So yeah, I well, don't understand. I
0: like watching a dead ball era game today would probably be insanely boring. Yeah. I'm I sure mean, there're modern
1: games that are insanely boring. Yeah. So. <laughs> I've had like I've seen I've seen games that have gone zero zero into the ninth. Mm-hmm. Like what was it? Like Justin Verlander threw a no hitter two seasons ago. Yeah. And that was zero zero into the ninth. Yeah. And it's like, this game sucks.
0: Or um, there was a game the Dodgers had against the Pirates a few years ago, and Rich Hill pitched a perfect game through nine innings, but it was a zero zero tie. So it goes to the tenth, and in the tenth he gave up a solo home run, which lost them the game. <laughs> So he pitched a perfect game It doesn't even get... <laughs> you suck, LA. <laughs> like, yeah, but also, I feel, I feel kind of bad for Rich Hill. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, so that's... So Philadelphia goes up 2-1. to one. And due to some bad weather, it would be a week before Game 4 could be played. Now that everybody's fully rested, Matthewson took the mound again <laughs> against Chief Bender. The third time in, what, four games? Yep. <laughs> it would be the highest scoring game so far, with six runs being scored. Unfortunately, the Giants were outscored 4-2, and the A's took a 3-1 series lead. So Game 5 was looking pretty grim for New York as they entered the ninth inning down 3-1. But the Giants rallied, scoring two runs to tie the game. They would go on to win the game 4-3 in the 10th inning thanks to a walk-off RBI single... From Fred Merkel. There you go, Fred. He made sure to touch first. <laughs> uh, the A's decided they wanted Game Six to be the last one, and they annihilated the Giants, thirteen to two, yeah. to earn their second consecutive World Series title. Good for the A's, yeah. but also
1: that's a like nightmare. Yeah, that's yeah, awesome.
0: especially for Deadball Time, yeah, like
1: 13, thirteen runs.
0: Like the Giants were a great team, but the Philadelphia A's were one of the first dynasties of baseball. They were the team to beat. Yeah. You know? So they took that tough loss. But hey, don't count out the Giants and don't count out Fred. Because uh, last year, his batting average was 283. But this year, 1912, he's hitting 309. He's getting better. A, Wait, his bat's not corked, is it? I don't think so. Okay, all right. All right. <laughs> it's, it's not 357. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, and the Giants followed up their 99 win season with 100, uh, a 103 win season and another trip to the World Series. Once again, the Giants rode their excellent pitching staff to 103 wins. Uh, Rube Marquard had set a record by going undefeated through his first 19 starts. Tell me that guy's name again. Rube Marquard. I'm not going to say anything, (laughs) just continue. Hey, everybody. Uh, For some reason, a few minutes of our recording got deleted, but that's okay. I'll just tell you what happens, because we're about to enter the 1912 World Series, and all you need to know is the New York Giants will be facing off against the Boston Red Sox and their star pitcher, Smokey Joe Wood. Why did they call him Smokey Joe Wood? Because he could throw fast. Like, really fast. Like, really, really fast. Anyway, enjoy the rest of the show. Game one saw the Red Sox send Smokey Joe to the mound, while the Giants sent out their rookie, Jeff Tesro. Jeff pitched an excellent game until the seventh inning where he allowed three runs. The Giants tried to rally late, but lost four to three. Now, game two was crazy. (laughs) Christine Mathewson faced off against Boston's Ray Collins. Mathewson got off to a bad start, allowing three runs in the first inning. Mm -hmm. Although, to be fair, Giants shortstop Art Fletcher allowed a runner to reach on error. The Giants responded by scoring a run in the second and another in the fourth. In the bottom of the fifth inning, Boston right fielder Harry Hooper hit a single to center field. He then attempted to steal second, and he would have been out, but the catcher's throw was not handled by Fletcher, who has now recorded his second error of the game. Steve Yerkes on Boston then hits a triple to center, scoring Hooper. Fletcher would redeem himself by catching a line drive from Boston's Trist speaker, and then he threw out Yerkes at third base for an inning-ending double play. Down four-two in the eighth inning, the Giants scored three runs thanks to ground rule doubles from Red Murray and Buck Herzog, which
1: they both hit to left. (laughs) Wait, this isn't at Fenway because can you hit a ground rule double at Fenway to left field? I guess at the time, maybe the monster hadn't been built yet. That might have been it. Yeah, because if so, yeah, 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 this is in Boston. Yeah, so 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 Fenway Park has. A gigantic wall in yeah. left field called the Green Monster. Yeah, it's like I forget how high it is. It's like 60 feet yeah, high 60 feet. or something. Like that. It's it's some crazy <clears throat> height. Um, and a ground rule double is where you you hit the ball, it lands fair, and then it bounces into the stands. Yeah, it bounces out of play. or it bounces out of play. Um, and that's called that's a ground rule double. Yeah. Um, <laughs> can I imagine hitting a ground rule double to the left. Yeah, <laughs> and <laughs> there today. You, I I don't think it's possible for a baseball to hit the ground, bounce sixty feet yeah. over a huge wall. <laughs> anyway, con-
0: continue, sorry. Now that's probably why I left that note in there and completely forgot. <laughs> Otherwise I don't know why I would have written that down. So yeah, the Giants score, they go up five to four, but their lead wouldn't hold. Uh the Red Sox tied the game in the bottom of the eighth in the bottom of the eighth, thanks in part to another Art Fletcher error which was immediately followed by another error by second baseman Larry Doyle. Both of these errors were committed with two outs in the inning. Oh, no. Neither team scored in the ninth, sending the game to extra innings. The top of the 10th saw a leadoff triple off the bat of Fred Merkel. Merkel scored thanks to a sacrifice fly from Moose McCormick, taking a 6-5 to lead. Yeah, Moose. (laughs) Moose. With one out in the bottom of the 10th, Tris Speaker hit a deep ball to center field. Speaker ran all the way around third and sprinted home. The relay throw came to the plate but was not fielded cleanly by the catcher. Speaker was credited with a triple and then scoring on an error. After neither team scored in the 11th, the game was called on account of darkness, and it ended in a 6-6 tie. The Giants finished the game with five errors. Matthewson pitched all 11 innings, surrendering 10 hits. Of the six runs he allowed, none of them were earned.
1: They're just all on errors. Yeah, so the difference between
0: earned runs and unearned runs is if, guys, if runners are reaching by error, or if a a fielder makes an error while there's two outs, that extends the inning, and then those runners score, those are unearned runs, as opposed to, you know, if you're just giving up hits and home runs and guys are scoring naturally, then that's an earned run. But if it's not your fault because of the fielders, then those are unearned runs. (laughs) Also, imagine that, a World Series game ending in a tie. (laughs) That's, yeah, that stinks. Uh, so game three was started by Rube Marquardt, and he delivered. He pitched a shutout game into the ninth, where he gave up an RBI double to Larry Gardner. But the Giants' defense held, despite Merkel committing an error with two outs to put the tying run aboard, and they won the game 2-1 to one to even the series at one game each. <laughs> game three, one to 1-1 one and one tie. <laughs> this World Series yeah. sucks. <laughs> uh, game four saw a rematch of the game one starters, Smokey Joe and Jeff Tesrow. <laughs> Uh once again Joe emerged the victorious pitcher. Jeff pitched a respectable game but he had a few rookie moments such as allowing a run to score on a wild pitch. Boston won 3 to 1. So now they're up 2 games to 1 game to one tie. Uh game 5 had another rookie versus ace matchup with Matthew, with Matthewson facing off against Boston's Q Bedient. Matthewson ran into trouble in the 3rd inning after he gave up a leadoff triple which was followed by another triple. With a runner on third, Matthew induced a ground ball to second base, which was not fielded cleanly and rolled into right field, allowing a second run to score, though they did get out of the inning without allowing another run. In the top of the seventh, Fred led off the inning with a double to center field. He later advanced to third on a sack fly to center. Moose McCormick came to the plate and with one out hit a ground ball to third base. But it was Boston's turn to have sloppy defense, as a third baseman couldn't field it. Merkel scored and Moose arrived safely at first. The Giants couldn't score again, and the game ended in Boston's favor two to one.
1: It seems like like the Moose Merkel combo is like the one two. Three. Yeah, that's the <laughs>
0: that's who you won the that's lineup who you back want. to back.
1: You won Moose and Merkel.
0: Going into game six, the Giants are down three games to one and one time. <laughs> but one tie. facing elimination inspired our boys. Rube was the starter and he got through the top of the first inning scoreless. The Giants looked to set the tone in the bottom of the first. Fred took the plate with two outs and runners on the corners. Boston's pitcher, Buck O'Brien, was called for a balk. And that's what, like when you make a false move that would, like, mess up a hitter or something. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a subjective rule, even today. Nobody really knows what a balk
1: is. Yeah, no one knows what a balk
0: is. But if a when you get called for a balk, that means runners get to advance bases. So, yeah, the guy on third comes and scores. And the guy on first now gets to go to second. Fred then hit a double to right field which scored murray who was on second base buck herzog followed up that double by hitting his own double that scored fred another chief comes up his name's chief myers he came to the plate and he hit a single to left moving herzog to third base where are all these chiefs coming from chief bender chief Chief myers Uh, i think chief myers was their catcher so uh once again the giants have runners on the corners with two outs uh, Myers made a run to steal second, and Herzog, the madman, used the opportunity to use the opportunity to steal home. Both runners safely stole their bases. <laughs> Yo, that's sick. <laughs> uh, the catcher's throw to second wasn't caught, and the ball went into center, allowing Myers to advance to third base. Art Fletcher then laid down a perfect bunt down the third baseline, scoring Myers. Although Fletcher did reach first base safely from his bunt, he was picked off at first, which ended the inning. The Giants had scored five times in the bottom of the first, though the Red Sox were quick to answer. The leadoff hitter reached first thanks to an error from Rube. Rube then gave up a single to center field. So runners on first and second, nobody out. Rube bounces back with a strikeout and then a foul out. With two outs and two runners on, Boston's nine hitter came up. Now, it should have been Buck since the pitcher would usually bat ninth, Mm -hmm. but he was pulled from the game after giving up five runs, which isn't weird to see nowadays but back then it was kind of strange yeah but yeah but this is the world series so a guy by the name of clyde angle pinch hit for him and he hit a double scoring both runners rube then got a pop out to end the inning so in just one inning and a half seven runs have been scored already
1: (laughs) that's pretty crazy
0: yeah for deadball especially uh ray collins took over for buck on the mound and started dominating but Rube was feeling good that day, too. The 5-2 to scoreline held to the end of the game, forcing a Game 7. Now, Game 7s are normally tied 3-3. Three three. That's not the case, obviously. <laughs> not, not this time. So Game 7 saw a third rematch of Smokey Joe and Jeff Tesoro. The Giants looked to continue their momentum from Game 6. Josh DeVore and Larry Doyle opened the game with back-to-back singles. Then they did another double steal, taking third and second base. Fred Snodgrass, <laughs> very unfortunate <laughs> name, uh then hit a double to right, scoring both runners. Red Murray followed up with a sacrifice bunt to first, advancing Snodgrass to third. Fred Merkel then came up came up and hit a single to left. Snodgrass scored and Merkel advanced to second when the left fielder threw the ball home. Merkel would be tagged out at third when Buck Herzog hit into a fielder's choice, though Herzog was able to advance to second but the inning's still going. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Art Fletcher hit a single to left, moving Herzog to third. Uh, Jeff Testro came to the plate, and he hit an RBI single right back to the pitcher, scoring Herzog and moving Fletcher to third. The double steal had been working for the Giants so far, so they did it again. (laughs) Fletcher scored from third, stealing home, but Testro got caught in the rundown and was tagged out to end the inning. When all was said and done, the Giants had scored six times. (laughs) Man.
1: Uh, I'm just breaking it.
0: Smokey Joe did not return to pitch in the second inning. He was relieved by Charlie Hall, who, immedi- who immediately gave up back-to-back walks. <laughs> That's did... the most normal name I've heard all night. Charlie Hall, yeah. <laughs> he did manage to pick off Josh DeVore at second base, but then Fred Snodgrass hit a single to right to put the runners back on first and second. Charlie tried to pick off the runner at second again, but his throw went sailing in the center field. Larry Doyle scored all the way from second, and Snodgrass moved to third. Hall got out of the inning, and the Red Sox got a run back thanks to a solo home run from Larry Gardner. Jeff and Charlie dueled into the sixth inning when Larry Doyle hit a two-run homer to put the Giants up 9-1. The Giants added to their lead in the seventh inning when Jeff hit an RBI single to score Fred Merkel. Boston scored twice in the seventh and once in the eighth thanks to errors from Larry Doyle at second base. The Giants scored again in the ninth to put themselves up 11-4. to four. Jeff Tesoro then threw a shutout inning to seal the game. New York had come back from being down three games to one to force game eight in a seven-game
1: series. Because it's three to three to one. <laughs> yep. Thanks. I, I guess they, they can't just let the World Series end in the tie. <clears throat> no. My guess,
0: if something like this happened today, like if Bad Weather forced a game to end in a tie, what they would do is if they needed the extra game, they would probably just pick up from where the other game left off. Yeah. So like 6-6, six to six, for example, like just start in the 10th with 6-6. Six to six. Right. At least that's how I would do it. I don't know. But that's not how they did it. So Game 8 <laughs> featured a rematch of the Game 5 starters. Christy Mathewson faced off against Hugh Bettyans. The decision to start these pitchers pissed off both teams' fan bases. <laughs> uh, the game was a really tense pitching duel. Uh, Red Murray put the Giants up 1-0 in the third inning with an RBI double. I should probably back up saying, you know, because it pissed off both the team's fan bases. The Giants were mad because Christy Mathewson hasn't won a game yet in this World Series, mm-hmm. which isn't really his fault because there's been a ton of errors. And Boston was mad because, A, they're Boston. And, B, um, Hugh is a rookie pitcher, and they didn't want a rookie in such a critical game. Yeah. Because this is for all the marbles. Whoever wins this wins the World Series. One, because it's Boston. (coughs) They're an angry people, Boston. (laughs) That's just a fact. That's an observable, measured, proven fact.
1: (laughs) You're not wrong,
0: but, you know... (laughs) Yeah, so that's why that's why everybody's mad at this
1: at this pitching matchup. Yeah, I would be too, honestly, I would be too.
0: So Red Murray puts the Giants up one to nothing in the third inning with an RBI double. With two outs and runners on first and second in the seventh inning, Boston sent Olaf Henriksen to the plate to pinch hit for Q. He hit his own RBI double to tie the game at one run each. Smoky Joe took over on the mound in the eighth inning, and the one to one tie held into the ninth inning. So we are now going to extra innings of an extra game in the
1: World Series. <laughs> of a game eight, yeah. Yeah. Of game eight. That's...
0: <laughs> Fred Snodgrass leads off the top of the 10th with a ground out for the Giants. Uh, Red Murray came up and hit a one-out double. Fred Merkel followed with a clutch single to center field, scoring Murray. Fred even advanced a second on a bad throw from the center fielder. Buck Herzog and Chief Myers couldn't get Fred home, but they held a one-run lead. So they're just three outs away from a World Series title. Matthewson took the mound where he was about to face the 9-1-2 hitters. So pitcher and then leadoff guy second. Now normally it should have been Smokey Joe batting knife. But Boston sent out Clyde Angle to pinch hit for him. Clyde hit a routine fly ball to right, to right center field. Fred Snodgrass called off the right field of Murray to make the catch. But... He muffed the catch, and Angle advanced to second on the error. So he just bobbles it. He doesn't catch the ball, yeah. and Clyde is now on second it's like base. like
1: nerves or something. I'm yeah,
0: sure. game-tying you know, game run, in scoring position with nobody out. Harry Hooper followed that up with a line drive to deep center field, and Snodgrass made a leaping catch to make the out. And Angle did not tag, so he's still on second. Steve Yerkes comes up, and he draws a walk. So now there's runners on first and second with one out. Tris Speaker comes to the plate. During the at-bat, he hit a high pop-up to the first base side. Uh, And Merkel, he's the first baseman. So he comes into foul territory to make the catch. But the catcher, uh, Chief Myers, was also making an effort to catch the ball. Matthewson called Merkel off to let Myers catch it, but Myers backed off too, and the ball dropped foul. So it's not really a big deal. It's just a strike. But they could have gotten the second out. Yeah. It's the second dropped ball of the inning, so that should have been out
1: number three. Sure. Uh it absolutely should. Yeah. And World Series over. Instead there's one out. Yeah, one out, two second. yeah.
0: Run out one out, two runners on, two runners. On the very next pitch, Speaker hit a single to right field. Murray fielded the ball and tried to throw out Angle, who was running for home. Angle slid in safely, and Yerkes and Speaker advanced to second and third. Tie game at two two. With runners on second and third with one out, Duffy Lewis was intentionally walked to bring the force out back into play. Um, Since there was no runner on first, um, there was no force out on any of the bases, so that's why they're loading the bases intentionally. Just to make it easier for fielders, because that way you can just step on a bag to get an out and you don't have to tag a guy out if there's a ground ball. This brings up Larry Gardner. Matthew was trying to induce a ground ball, but Gardner hit a fly ball to right field. Murray made the catch... But since that's only the second out of the inning, Yerkes is able to tag from third base, and he makes a break for home. Murray throws home, but it was not in time. The Red Sox walked off 3-2 to two to win the World Series. Man. <sighs> so here are some fun stats. Uh, are they fun? Are they really? For Boston, I guess. <laughs> so here's the team's batting average for this series. New York's batting average was 270. Boston's was 220. New York scored 31 runs. Boston scored 25. New York's ERA was 1.71. Boston's ERA was 2.55. They were better than Boston, like li- literally every measure. And they lost the World Series because if you look at the errors, New York had 17 errors and Boston only had 14. And eight of those errors came while Christy Mathewson was pitching.
1: Defense wins championships, baby. <laughs> it does. Like, it's it's kind of incredible. Man, I, I remember I I was looking at stats a couple of years back. So I'm a Mariners fan. I, and unfortunately, <laughs> I'm a Mariners fan. Um, I was looking at stats, and I was looking at team stats, and I was looking at, well, the Mariners, they have, like, they have a pretty good ERA. They were ranked, like, you know, 12th or something you know they have a pretty good like team batting average it was like 10th or something like that you know so they're, is this all time or this no this is like this a, is like for that one season okay you know they do pretty well they've been getting hits you know they've been doing all this stuff and it's like well why why are they last in their division and i look at how many errors they had and they had like almost double the amount of errors as the next team oh wow yeah and it was like yeah, That's, there it is. That's why. <laughs> they lost the World Series
0: basically on errors, even though they were better by literally every other metric. The next day, if you were a New York baseball player whose name was Fred, uh, the newspapers wanted to print your stories. They wanted to print stories with your blood, basically. Because <laughs> much like Merkel's boner four years prior, Game 8 of the World Series became known as Snodgrass's muff. <laughs> <laughs> um no. Yep. You can't do that. Yep. Uh once again John McGraw stepped up and defended his players. Uh McGraw even wrote about this game in his memoir saying, "Quote, people always ask me what I did to Snodgrass after he dropped that fly ball. I'll tell you what I did. I raised his salary a $1,000, <laughs> which today is about $27,000.
1: That's like that's a manager that believes in his team." Yeah which I think is really admirable, but also Snotgrass's muff. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Snotgrass took most
1: of the heat for losing the World
0: Series, but reporters were sure to point out Merkel's dropped foul ball with one headline reading, quote, Bonehead Merkel does it again.
1: Can't get away from it.
0: So baseball historians kind of consider the 1912 World Series to be one of the greatest, most exciting World Series ever played. I believe it, shit. just how back and forth and just the the tragic heartbreak and all the you know all yeah. costly errors and clutch plays. everything and, went wrong with
1: the giants.
0: yeah, it's like it was such a perfect storm. like so much had to go right for it to end the way it did. yeah, <laughs> yeah, so they took a really tough loss there, but heartbreak didn't faze them. They came back in nineteen thirteen to win one hundred and one games, their third consecutive pennant and their third consecutive trip to the World Series. And once again, they would be facing the Philadelphia A's. Philly took Game 1, New York took Game 2, and then Philly won the next three, winning the series in five games. Fred continued to be a reliable player for the Giants until he was traded to the Brooklyn Robins in 1916. The Robins were a National League team that lasted from 1914 to 1931, and they went to the World Series in 1916. Fred even played in three games, but they lost to the Red Sox in five. Merkel started 1917 with the Robins, but was sold to the Cubs after their first baseman broke his leg. Mm. So when Fred joined the team who had given him his nickname, well, not directly, but you
1: know how yeah. he got
0: it, uh, Johnny Evers was no longer on the team. <laughs> in 1918, Fred found himself playing in the World Series for the fifth time, but he's with the Cubs. <laughs> so they lost to the Red
1: Sox in six games. <laughs> yep. Mer- Wasn't 1918 the last time the Red Sox won a World Series until like 2003 oh you might be right i think because the curse of the bambino started in i thought it was like 1918 or 1919 it might might have been one of those yeah oh i didn't look that up man
0: (laughs) you might be right (laughs) you had two Um, curses in this story. well the curse of the billy goat for chicago that didn't come until 1945 okay um but yeah they had already been in a drought for a while by the time that came around i've done a little bit of reading about the curse of the billy goat and what Chicago tried to do to break the curse—it's ridiculous—and we're going to talk about know. it. <laughs> I don't want to know—not right now.
1: Baseball curses are insane. <laughs> yeah, because they're so long, and they've gone through so many generations that they just keep getting more yeah. insane. The, the cultural phenomena of them is really interesting. Um,
0: so, Merkel played with the Cubs until 1920. He was not offered a contract with anyone in 1921, and he started for playing for Rochester in the International League, which was basically, like, minor league play. Mm -hmm. So you have a 12-year major league veteran who is now playing, this was kind of referred to as, like, double-A baseball.
1: Yeah. Uh, Um, That stinks. Man.
0: Yeah, but also, like, he annihilated every pitcher at the plate. In his four years playing with Rochester, his lowest batting average was three forty.
1: <laughs> He's like, oh, here comes Fred. Yeah. <laughs> um, in
0: 1924, he batted three fifty-one, which caught the attention of the New York Yankees. They made an offer for his contract to have him as a backup first baseman. Rochester agreed to send Merkel to the Yankees, but they wanted a player in return, and the player they asked for was Lou Gehrig. Oh, no! They asked for Lou Gehrig. Naturally, the Yankees said, fuck that, we're not giving you Lou Gehrig. <laughs> yeah. Instead, they gave Rochester $6,000, which is about $91,000 today, okay. <laughs> which, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't give up Lou Gehrig, Are you kidding me? <laughs> That really speaks to how valuable Rochester saw Fred Merkel because he just, he was always getting hits, basically. Um, Fred only played in eight games with the Yankees across his two seasons with the team. In 1926, the Yankees went to the World Series. Now, when you go to the World Series with the Yankees, especially when you have players on your roster like Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth, you're probably going to win. Um they didn't (laughs) they lost to the cardinals in seven games so fred has gone to the world series like six times i think i should have written it down but yeah he's been like six or seven times and he's never won um he might be cursed yeah the curse of fred the curse of the the boner or whatever (laughs) (laughs) boner's curse Fred was released by the Yankees in 1927, and he had a short-lived managing position for Rochester. In 1929, he moved to Daytona Beach and managed the local minor league team. As the story goes, when one of Fred's players referred to him as a bonehead, he simply walked off the diamond and just left baseball behind him. He just didn't come back. Uh, He always shunned reporters as they only wanted to ask him about that fateful base running mistake. The only time he returned to the Diamond was in 1950 when he attended an old-timers game with the Giants where he received a standing ovation from the fans. Uh, Six years later, Fred passed away in Daytona Beach. His body was interred at Bellevue Cedar Hill Memory Gardens. Although his career was marred by one play, his reputation amongst his teammates was excellent. They all loved him and they all thought he was a really intelligent player. His career stats include a wins above replacement of 19.8 A career batting average of 273 with over 1,500 hits and 272 stolen bases.
1: That's really good.
0: Yeah, like, it's not Hall of Fame caliber, but just a solid player. Like, Mm. excellent any team would be lucky to have him. Uh, Fred was commemorated at his hometown of Waterford, and the high school baseball field is named after him. However, even in death, Fred cannot escape the infamous play. (sighs) In 2004, Chicago constructed a monument to Fred Sims when Merkel's Bar and Grill was opened just down the street from Wrigley Field. It's literally a two-minute walk on Google Maps. That's awful. Uh, They have a daily happy hour from 7 to 9 p.m. every day where you can get Bud Light on Draft for $1. Cool. Fred's image is displayed prominently above the bar, and their website recounts the whole story of Merkel's boner. You can even join their email list, which is called The Bonehead. I wish I had a better way to end this episode without leaving a bad taste in everyone's mouth. It's been 112 years. Yeah. So I will leave you on this anecdote. On July 1st, 2013, a minor league matchup between, get these team names, the Lansing Lugnuts and the Great Lakes Loons was a tie game in the bottom of the ninth inning. The Lugnuts had runners on the corners with two outs. Can you see where this is going? I can see where this is going. And hit what appeared to be a walk-off base hit. The runner from first base celebrated with his teammates without touching second base. The run was nullified, the game went to extra innings, and the Lugnuts lost. (laughs) Time is a flat
1: circle baseball <laughs> is dumb <laughs> so johnny what did you learn how do you feel <laughs> i'm gonna be honest yeah i was feeling pretty good until you told me about merkel's bar and grill yep <laughs> i was like oh this is like a good story everyone loves everyone loves fred you know all of his teammates like him his coach stood up for him even mm-hmm. through thick and thin and then chicago mm-hmm <laughs> They had to go and do that. Who They already ruined his life, basically. <laughs> and now
0: they immortalized. Literally down the street, from the
1: ball field. Like... <laughs> Alright. I get it. That was the last World Series Chicago won in 108 years. But, like, name it after one of your players. Name Name it...
0: Like, Joe Tinker on that team... He was a huge part. He was, like, one of their middle infielders. Like, Johnny Evers, I think, was shortstop, and Joe Tinker was second base, or maybe it was the other way around. But they were the middle infield, mm-hmm. and they actually hated each other. Yeah. <laughs> they did not get along, but they could play well with each other. Like, why not name it after one of them? Name <laughs> the,
1: name it the Johnny Evers bar and grill. Or yeah. Just don't name it the Merkel bar and grill. That guy has had enough. <laughs> Done that, enough
0: to him, Chicago. That,
1: that guy died, like, almost... 80 years ago. Uh-huh. Just give him a break, please.
0: It's it's truly unfair. It is it unfair. Is, it is unfair. Life is cruel. You deserve better, Fred. You deserve better.
1: <laughs> I agree. Um,
0: well, thank you all for listening to this, uh, this epic tale. We've been going for almost an hour and a half here. Um, it'll be shorter on the edit. Uh, welcome to the future. Uh, <laughs> you can follow the show. Uh, on social media if you're listening on itunes or apple Podcasts, whatever it's called leave us a review uh because that really helps us out and uh if you like the show share it with your friends and if you don't like the show uh share it with someone you hate and uh i'll ruin their day for you let's help each other out here (laughs) uh any any last words that anything you want to add johnny no i'm just kind of sad yeah i'm i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's okay uh, right. <laughs> thanks for listening everybody good night <laughs>